The following audio is from Two Pillars Church, a gospel-centered, missionally-focused church located in Lincoln, Nebraska. More information about Two Pillars Church can be found at www.twopillarschurch.com. As you're taking your seat, I want you to think for a moment about who you are. Who are you? How would you, how would you answer that question? Who am I? Right? There's a, a lot of different ways that we can answer that question, and it's becoming um, an increasingly important question today with the rise of stuff like expressive individualism, which is creating more and more pressure on, on younger and younger people, and all, all people actually, to really discover who we are. Who are you? That's an extremely important question, and, and how you answer it, and not, not just how you answer it, as in you get to decide, all right, but further down, who... Who you actually are at the deepest level of your identity, it shapes everything about your life. So who are you? Who am I? I mean, I I can answer that question a a lot of different ways, right? I'm I'm Todd. (laughs) Nice to meet you. Uh, The the son of of Tom and Vicki. I am a Christian. I'm a husband. I'm a father of three daughters. Um, I'm white. I'm a man. I'm a white man. I'm a pastor. I'm a Nebraskan, right? I am a long-suffering Husker football fan. I am today. I'm a sad St. Louis Cardinals fan. All right. I am an Enneagram five with a wing six and a high three. All right. I'm a Myers Briggs INTJ. All those things are true and all are fine to describe who I am, but they don't define me at the deepest level of who I am. See, in this passage, the Apostle Paul, he, he cuts through the, the zillion different types of people in this world, and he says, deep down, deepest down, there's two kinds of people. Those who live according to the flesh, and those who live according to the Spirit. Now, I don't usually like to do this, but in the Greek, or at the original language, the word live isn't actually in there in verse 5. And that's sort of relevant. I understand why the translators put it in there, but it's sort of relevant for us to know that it's not actually in the Greek. Paul isn't just talking about lifestyles. He isn't talking about how you live your truth or what you think is true. In fact, he isn't talking about anything to do with an identity that we try to adopt, craft, or curate for ourselves. He's actually talking about deep identity. The NASB, which is a more literal translation of the Bible, is helpful here. Look at how it reads. It says, for those who are in accord with the flesh, set their minds on the flesh. But those who are in in accord with the Spirit, set their minds on the things of the Spirit. Paul's not just saying that you live like one who's in the flesh versus living like one who is in the Spirit. He says, deep down, you are one of the two. You're either in accord with the flesh or you're in accord with the spirit. And your behavior flows from your being. Your living is a a result of your deepest identity. See, what, what Paul is doing here in these verses is he is describing two completely opposed orientations to life that originate at the deepest levels of who you and I actually are. And it comes, of course, right on the heels of verse 4. 
In fact, verses 5 through 8, that's primarily what we're looking at today, but verses 5 through 8 explain to us something about verse 4. Remember verse 4? Remember last week? We said last week that God the Father sent God the Son into the world, right? Jesus came, and he lived, and he died, taking on the penalty for sin in order that. Remember the in order that from verse 4? In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in you and me, in us. This is the purpose that Paul gives in Romans 8 for the incarnation and the atonement. The atonement. To, to actually transform us into a people who would follow in his ways. A people who would love him and obey him and follow him and commune with him and enjoy him, glorify him. God's purpose has never merely been to have a group of uncondemned people join him in heaven, but rather a people who would walk with him in the here and now and on into forever in heaven. But walking in his ways, in the here and now, obeying him in the here and now, glorifying him in the here and now. He wants us to be the kind of people that we were originally created to be all the way back in the garden before the fall. Showing the world while proclaiming to the world, nothing is better than Jesus. And so we said last week that the gospel, it isn't just about justification, about being counted right before God and there being now no condemnation for us in Christ. It is about that, but it also goes beyond that. The gospel, the good news about Jesus is also about sanctification. It's about growing in holiness, growing in Christ's likeness in this life. Keeping his statutes and his rules and his commands, delighting in them even. Fulfilling the law, to use verse 4 language. And we said, that's inevitable actually for someone who's truly a Christian. Just as certain as there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ, so also there is now sanctification for those who are in Christ. You are being sanctified. You are growing in holiness and Christ-likeness if you belong to Jesus. You are. There is now law-fulfilling happening in your life if you're a believer. How is that possible? Well, because the Holy Spirit lives in you. And only because the Holy Spirit lives in you. It's possible because you are in accord with the Spirit. It's not possible for anyone who is in accord with the flesh. And that's what Paul contrasts here implicitly and explicitly in, in every verse for us today. Let's walk through these contrasts and then we'll dial in a little bit more about what it means to be in accord with the Spirit. Make sure you got your Bible open to Romans chapter 8. Okay, I want you to have one eye on the text in your lap and then one eye up here on the screen where I'll detail out these contrasts. Because what Paul contrasts here with, with respect to the two deep identities that we can have is our mindset. He contrasts that. Our experience in life and eternal life. Our relationship to God. Our relationship to the law. And the result of it all. And some of you right now are like, oh my goodness, it's a table on the screen. He definitely is an Enneagram 5. You're right. You're right. It's part of who I am. It's not the deepest part. For, for our mindset, first, look at verse 5 in your copy of God's Word. For, for those who live according to the flesh, those who are in accord with the flesh, set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit, again, those who are in accord with the Spirit, set their minds on the things 
of the Spirit. Now, the flesh here, to, to be one who lives according to the flesh means, if I can just put it really simply, it, it means to not have the Holy Spirit in you. It means to not be converted, to not be regenerated. It's the, it's the opposite of being born again. It's to be a non-Christian. That's what it means to be according to the flesh. And as one who is in accord with the flesh, your mindset is fixed upon fleshly things, Paul says. Earthly things. Like our, our whole mentality is in that direction. And it's a godless direction. It's the direction of the world. And because our whole mentality is in that direction, that's why translators put the word the live and life in there. It's like your whole life is oriented in that direction. Paul's talking about our, our likes and our dislikes, our, what we want out of life, how we understand the purpose of life, how we understand anything. And to have our mind set on such things means we don't just think about earthly things occasionally. No, this actually dominates our life. It's what we think about habitually. It's what drives us at the core of, of who we are. Now, there's religious and non-religious versions of this in Lincoln, aren't there? <laughs> um, the non-religious ones are pretty obvious. You know, we, we can name these things off. You know, like living very visibly in, in outward sinful ways. All the ways that any Christian would, would look to, um, to someone and say, man, that is just extremely sinful. You know, drunkenness, adultery, murder, fornication, all the socially unacceptable sins of our day. But because we live in Lincoln, Nebraska, here in the Midwest, you likely know someone who is very religious to one degree or another, and yet still lives according to the flesh. You can be here today and not be here to worship God. You realize that? Like you, you could be here today trying to do something, maybe trying to appease him with your works and your presence. Oh, I went to church, so. You can be here to impress him and earn his favor so you can get what you really want when you really want it, either today or down the road. Like I've, I've been going to church. Surely God's going to give me what I want, right? Why would he withhold it? You can serve, you can give, and it can still all be about you. In which case, you're not really serving God at all, you're serving yourself, trying to get what you want. Your, your prayer isn't, Lord, your will be done. Your prayer is really, if you're honest, my, my will. My will be done, please, God. We can be here to try to gain approval of others, power over others. You can look the part, see, and still be in accord with the flesh. Focused on you, what you're getting out of Christianity, what you're getting out of church, what you're getting from God. Again, your prayer, my will be done. And Paul contrasts that with those who live instead according to the Spirit. They are those who set their minds upon the things of the Spirit. It's an entire mentality. To have your mind set is a, is a comprehensive term. It's not just your mind. It's your affections, your desires, your, your longings. All of that is set not on earthly things, but spiritual things. Not perfectly, but habitually. The mind set on the Spirit isn't constrained only with the visible, but is open also to the invisible, the work of God in the world and in your life that you can't see. 
It's not just concentrated on the here and now, but has an eternal perspective. It doesn't have self at the center of everything. It has Jesus there. The deepest longings, the deepest appetites are, are not carnal, but spiritual. They're not selfish, but God-glorifying. And therefore, verse 6, the person who is in accord with the Spirit, the person whose mind is set upon the Spirit, what they experience is life and peace. Life and peace. Contrasted with those in accord with the flesh who Paul tells us experience death. And there's both temporal and eternal aspects to this. Of course, we understand the eternal ones. We've addressed this many times. For the Christian, for the one who lives according to the Spirit, eternal life and eternal peace awaits us in the life to come. For the non-Christian, the one who lives according to the flesh, eternal death awaits you in the life to come. But this is about far more than the experience of eternity. It's about the experience of life. True life. Life the way that God designed it to be. For those who are in accord with the flesh, all of life is actually death. Even if you're enjoying it. Because the ways in which you are enjoying yourself, the, the, the things that you're looking to bring purpose and joy and meaning and value to your life, they'll never fully deliver. They'll always let you down. They'll never be enough. And so you continue to pursue more money, more sex, more power, more thrill, more fame, more joy, more control, more approval, more acceptance, because you'll never have enough. If that's you... How's that working out for you? It's never enough. I know. I tried it too. And Paul describes the experience of that kind of living as death. There's no real life in that way of living. And then the contrast for those who live in accord with the Spirit, in the here and now, not just eternity, there's life, there's peace. Your, your life is, is fixed in pursuing what God created you to pursue. You're finding purpose and joy and meaning and value in Him. And He always fully delivers. He never lets you down. He's always enough, even when He doesn't feel like it. And the more you pursue him, the more you get of him. He never runs out. When you're in accord with the Spirit, when that's who you are at the deepest level of your being, you have life and you actually have it abundantly. Even when suffering is present. Even when pain is there. You're able to sing that old hymn and, and mean it, oftentimes through tears and just loads of heartache. You're able to sing and you believe, it is well. It is well. It is well with my soul. Even when things don't go the way you want them to. You know where you're going and you know how you're going to get there. You know you belong to God and always will. You know he's with you and he's never going to leave you. He's never going to forsake you. Your mind is fixed on him and therefore you have peace in your life. You worship a God who is in control of it all and the result is life and peace, my friends. Life and peace. 
Sticking with that idea of peace, Paul next contrasts the relationship to God for these two kinds of people. It's, and it's not here explicitly in verse 7, but it was just a minute ago in verse 6, and it was way back in Romans 5 verse 1. For, those who, for, for the one who is in accord with the Spirit, there's peace with God. There's a, a settledness to your relationship with God made possible through Jesus where you're at peace with him and he's at peace with you. You've been reconciled. For the one who is in accord with the flesh, however, Paul says in verse 7, there's hostility. You're hostile towards God. Perhaps he hasn't come through for you like you want him to and you're angry with God. Perhaps you don't like how he wants you to live, so you dismiss his word, which is dismissing him. That's hostility. There's hostility. There's enmity. There's opposition where you're hostile towards him, and he in return stands in opposition to you. This hostility is not just a feeling. Ah, I feel hostile towards God. You might think, I'm not feeling hostile towards God at all. Even if not, there's hostility towards you if you're not reconciled through Jesus. Remember Romans 1.18? The wrath of God has been revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness. There's hostility, see? Enmity between God and those who are in accord with the flesh. Contrasted with peace for those who are in accord with the Spirit. Two more. Paul contrasts for us in the second half of verse 7 the relationship to the law for those t- these two kinds of people. He says, For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. For the person who is in accord with the flesh, he or she really doesn't care what God has to say. She's not interested in submitting to Him. She's her own authority. She's got her own truth. She's not praying for God's will to be done, but rather her own. And so this person doesn't submit to God's law, but Paul goes one step further. He says this person cannot. Do you see that there at the end of verse 7? This is getting down, right down to the heart of the contrast. See, it's, it's not just that those who live according to the flesh don't submit to God's law. It's that they can't. They don't want to, and they're not able to. This was something that Paul so desperately wanted his Jewish brother Pharisees to know and understand. His Jewish critics, see, and even, if, even our own, if we preach the gospel with clarity and conviction, Paul's critics complained that his theology would lead to license. People just doing whatever they wanted to. Ignoring the law, not seeking to keep it at all. And what Paul is telling us here, though, is the exact opposite is true. It's the unbelieving Jews who are unable to keep the law because they do not have the Spirit of Christ in them. They do not submit to God's law. Indeed, they cannot. And sure, they can look the part. The Pharisees look the part. They can do a lot of really religious stuff, but deep down, none of it is actually coming from a heart that's transformed by God. It's all for self deep down, for appearance, for what you get out of it. And contrast that now with those who live according to the Spirit. Paul has said back in Romans 7 verse 22, he said he delights in the law of God. 
in his inner being. He loves the law. He agrees that it is good. And although he cannot keep it perfectly, he submits to it willingly. He prays, not my will, but yours, O Lord, be done. And in contrast with not being able to follow God's law for those who live according to the Spirit, it's possible. It's not only possible, it's happening. Remember verse 4 and everything that came before this in chapter 8 already? There is no condemnation for those in Christ because you've been set free. You've been set free because God's done some stuff. Sending Jesus to die for your sin. And he did it all in order that, so that, the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. Who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. In other words, it's not only possible that you can live in law-fulfilling ways, God has sent His Holy Spirit in you to empower you to do exactly that. And as a result, you are able to live a life pleasing to God, glorifying God, while those who live according to the flesh cannot. Again, a great contrast, the greatest contrast, those who live according to the flesh and those who live according to the Spirit. Paul's whole point here is that for those who live according to the Spirit, for those who are in accord with the Spirit at the deepest level of who you are, okay, for Christians, there is now law-fulfilling happening in your life if you're a Christian. And it's pleasing to God. It's glorifying to God How is it possible? Well, again, because the Holy Spirit lives in you. And only because the Holy Spirit lives in you. It's possible because of who you now are. Paul longs for his Jewish brothers and sisters, and I long for all of us to grasp this. Only those who belong to Jesus and all those who belong to Jesus have received the power to obey God's commandments. And there's no neutral ground here. You're either, according to Paul, you're either in the flesh or in the spirit. In accord with the flesh or in accord with the spirit. It's who you are. There's no in-between. There's two, two types of people, Paul says. Deepest down, two types. It's your deep identity and what's truest about you at the deepest level of who you are. When we're born, remember when you were born? Of course you don't. How much of that, how much of any of that did you have to do with it? Not a whole lot, right? I mean, you just kind of were. You're born. We all come into this world. When we come into this world, because of the sin of Adam, we are all born sinful. We're all born into this world in accord with the flesh. All of us, it's who we are by nature. It's the default reality on this side of Genesis 3. It's our our out-of-the-box settings, right? You're not born neutral. There is no neutral. You and I are not naturally inclined towards God. We're naturally inclined towards ourselves. Look at a toddler. We'll prove it. Which is why we we don't just need a, a little bit of help. A little bit of improvement. We need to be born again. 
If you're here today and you're actually living according to the flesh, that means you're not a Christian. Right? If that's you, God is not saying to you, hey, um, could you try just a little bit harder to be spiritual? You know, he's not saying, come on, come on, you can do it. You can do it. Just change your mind a little bit. Just try hard. Just be, just be, a, could you just be a little bit better? Could you, could you stop that thing and, and do this thing? Would you read this book? Have you heard my favorite podcast? That's not how God interacts with you, if that's you. No, he says, you're helpless. You're as helpless to be born again as you were to be born to begin with. You need the work of God in your life. For the mind that is set on the flesh, whether you realize it's that way or not, is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Work as hard as you want. It's not going to get it done. And so what you need, if that's you, is nothing short of the Trinitarian miracle that we talked about last week. You need to look to Jesus and see God the Father out of his eternal love for you, sending Jesus for you and for your sin and trusting in him. Trust that he really did die on the cross for your sin and that he really did rise to give you new life. Listen, the only way that happens is by faith, which is a miracle of the Spirit of God actually regenerating your heart to begin with, where you say, yes, I see Jesus, and I believe that he actually did that for me. You can just muster that up on your own. The Spirit does work in your life, and he might be doing it right now to cause faith in you to believe that this stuff is actually true. That he really can and really does send his Spirit into you to make you born again, giving you a new identity, and to begin changing you then from the inside out. You cannot, will not, ever do that on your own. It only comes by the work of God in your life, looking at Jesus, trusting in Jesus. And when that happens, you're now in the other column. There's only two columns. Who are you? At the deepest level of identity, are you in accord with the flesh or are you in accord with the spirit? Now, something that I find extremely ironic with all of this is that whichever of the two we are, we have a sneaky and subversive and chronic tendency to think that we're the other. For those who are in accord with the flesh, the thinking goes, I'm not that bad. I'm not living for myself. I mean, I served at that potluck thing for my community. I do good things for people. I serve others. I'm not as bad as some other people that I know. I've never murdered anybody. I only get drunk sometimes. Maybe I even go to church once in a while. Hell surely cannot be real. And if it is, certainly I won't be there. There's a tendency, see? And then there's the other side. Those who really are in accord with the Spirit, but chronically think that they're probably not. And if I'm guessing, we have far more people in the room today that feel that way than the other. 
And if that's you, let me just remind you, there's only two kinds of people contrasted here. It's not a contrast between bad Christians and better ones. If you're a Christian, these verses in Romans 8, 5 through 8, are telling you who you are. There's no commandments here. There's no commands in this passage. You see that? Paul is describing, not commanding. He's describing two different realities. It's not a pep talk. Read it again. Paul isn't exhorting anyone here to live according to the Spirit or work super darn hard to fulfill the law. He's not saying that there's a a spectrum from Christians with those who live according to more the flesh over here on the one side and those who live more according to the Spirit over here on the other side. He's not saying to you today, come on, please, do it for me. He's not saying you can do it, just live Live better. Just try harder. Get over here. Shift your mind a little bit in the direction of the Spirit. Like, let's move just a couple notches this way today. He's not, that's not what he's saying. That's not this text. There are other texts in the Bible that talk like that, that urge us on in our holiness. I think of 1 Peter 1.15. Be holy, for God is holy, right? Like, be holy. It's an exhortation there. There's lots of other places in the Bible that talk like that, but this isn't actually one of them. Paul's not contrasting bad Christians from better ones and saying, get it together, would you? He's saying, this is who you are. There's only two kinds of people, and when you trusted in Jesus, you were reborn. You're a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come, and you're not going back to the old again. You've been transferred from the domain of darkness into his marvelous light, and you're not going back. There's no condemnation for you now, and there never will be. Remember, there never can be. You're free now. And as a Christian, that whole new covenant stuff from Ezekiel 36 that we were looking at last week, it was for real. Oh, you've been washed clean. But also, you really have been given a new heart. You really have been given new desires a new mindset, peace with God. He's talking to you here. You. Weak you. Wounded you. Fragile you. Still sinning sometimes you. With all your limits. With all your struggles and all of your inconsistencies and crazy. He's still talking to you. With all your indwelling sin and doubt and fear, with all the work yet to do, he's talking to you. I know you're tempted to think that you're in accord with the flesh. Paul's telling you, not if you belong to Jesus, you aren't. You are in accord with the Spirit. You've been made new. 
And your newness goes all the way down to the deepest level of who you are. God hasn't just made a change for you by what he did on the cross through Jesus. God hasn't just made a change in you, though he has. He has also made a change of you. He's given you a new identity. You have been made new. A new heart, yes, and also the Holy Spirit of God has been sent to dwell in you. You are now and always will be someone in whom the Spirit of Christ dwells. This is who you are. And this is who you will always be. And I know there's still a lot of mess, but your most fundamental longing now is for Jesus. Your desires have changed. Not perfectly, but they have. You're someone who wants to live for Jesus now, and even when you don't want to, you want to want to. Like if there's a if there's a giant lever on that wall right over there that you could pull, and if you pulled that lever, you know, it just purge your life from any sin ever again in your life. You would really like to get your hands on that lever, wouldn't you? You would run over there. It would be, it would be funny. You would run over. You'd jump over people. You'd jump over pews to grab that lever, pull that thing down, sit on it, and wrap some duct tape around it to your foot so it never goes up again. Those who are in accord with the flesh would never do that. But you would. And your tender conscience towards your sin in your life that makes you doubt all this to begin is actually evidence of it. The Spirit of God is in you. You fix your mind on the things of the Spirit, not continuously, but increasingly. You have life, you have peace, peace with God, and peace in the here and now, no matter how hard it gets. It is well with your soul. You delight in God's law. You've been empowered to keep it. You've been empowered to glorify God by keeping his law. Listen, the law that was fulfilled for you by Jesus is now being fulfilled in you by the work of his spirit. All for the glory of the Father in heaven. If you're a Christian, this is who you are. This is what now defines you at the deepest level of who you are. What good news. Now just let me end briefly and and practically with three implications of all this. Three implications in light of all this and and how you relate to, one, non-Christians, two, other Christians, and three, yourself. Non-Christians first. How you relate to non-Christians. Remember what Paul has said in verse 7? Okay, for the non-Christian, A, they do not submit to God's law, and B, they cannot. All right? And so real simply, we shouldn't expect non-Christians to live like Christians. Shouldn't expect it. If your idea of evangelism involves seeing people get their act cleaned up and then start coming to church, you've totally misunderstood the gospel. If your idea of engagement with those who are far from Jesus involves like, 
you know, barring the doors of, of this building and keeping, this, keeping them out of this sanctuary, right, for, for those who aren't yet living according to a Christian ethic, you're in the wrong church. We want people to encounter Jesus in the gospel because we know only Jesus actually changes people. And as a missional church, there's always going to be people in this room and even in your gospel communities who don't have a mature Christian ethic. You might disagree with him on some things. Even if they do have a mature Christian ethic, you're probably going to disagree on some stuff, right? But even for someone who doesn't have like a, even this Christian ethic that we might be looking, don't freak out. They might not even be believers yet. Or they might be very young ones still coming to terms with the implications of your faith. Have you come to terms with all the implications of your faith yet? I haven't. I sure haven't. But if by what we say explicitly or what we communicate implicitly, we're saying, hey, in order to become a Christian, you need to live like this and not like this. What we're giving people is religion without the gospel, which isn't actually going to save them. Even if they were to take it, the best that they become is a fleshly Pharisee. And Jesus has got a problem with those people in the Bible, doesn't he? One step further, in a day where we've gone from Christianity being viewed as a positive thing in our culture to Christianity being a neutral thing in our culture to now Christianity, I don't know if you realize it or not, it's a pretty negative thing actually in our culture. People are saying, hey, to live like a Christian is actually dangerous <laughs> to others. Not only should we not expect non-Christians to live like Christians, we should no longer expect that they'll even think that the ways we're living are good. Which means... People don't just need to be told that God's way is better. They need to be shown it too. So you've got to share the gospel and walk by the Spirit, deeply engaged in people's lives around you. Live a loving and compelling life. The, the least, the least Christ-like posture that there is is to hunger. So be the most Christ-like version of yourself to others around you who are far from Christ because many have rejected a Christianity that isn't actually Christianity. And what you want is for others to not just hear about Jesus from you, but also to see Jesus' love and Jesus' joy and Jesus' peace and his patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control exude from you in your work, in your marriage, in your family, in your neighborhood, in school, like whatever it is, wherever you're at. They need both, to hear the gospel and to see it too. Secondly, implications for how you relate to other Christians. Remember, there's only two kinds of people. And he who began a good work in you has also begun a good work in every other believer in this church. Those works didn't start at the same time. And his work in each of us doesn't move at the same pace. And he's not focusing on the same thing in all of us all at the same time either. But he's working in us. All of us and each of us who belong to him. Trust that. When someone here says something stupid, might be, might be me, <laughs> say a lot of things, Chances are pretty good I'm going to say something stupid at some point. Any of us, though, are capable of saying something stupid. Any of us are, are capable of rubbing somebody the wrong way. When, when someone says something that irks you or hurts your feelings, when someone here actually sins against you, don't be surprised. 
there is still sin dwelling in each of us, them and you. But also, don't give up on them either. God hasn't. He's forgiving. He's patient. Which means we can be too. As he continues his work in them and in you. You can go to them. You can pursue forgiveness and reconciliation. I'm not talking about extreme, you know, extreme matters of abuse or something like that. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about the ordinary warp and woof of living life together in a fallen and broken world with other Christians who still have indwelling sin in them. You can go to them. You can pursue forgiveness and reconciliation. You can even expect it. Because the same Spirit of God who lives in you lives in them. And he loves to see brothers and sisters reconciled to God and to each other. And remember, just like you, they are also, that other person is really tempted to believe that they're still in the flesh too. And so encourage one another and build one another up, just as you were doing, Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 5.11. Keep doing it. Keep doing it. Lastly then, how you relate to yourself, implication of all this for how you relate to yourself How do you relate to yourself in light of these truths, huh? Well, with the same patience and the same gentleness and the same kindness and self-control as you relate to anyone else. God has shown you so much grace. Don't be afraid to show yourself a little too. He who began a good work in you will see it through to completion. Let's pray. Father, God, we sing, we, we have this song that we sing around. I think we sang it last week. We, we sing it so often around here that if I ever forget my true identity, show me who I am and help me Help me to believe. God, would that be our prayer this morning, Lord? Show us who we really are. We believe. Help our unbelief. And from our deep identity, deepest down, would we live lives of law-fulfilling joy, enabled by Jesus, Empowered by your spirit, all for your glory, Father, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this audio from Two Pillars Church. Feel free to share this audio with others, but please do not alter or edit the content in any way. For more information about Two Pillars Church, please visit www.twopillarschurch.com.